Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ you, who once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. If you're anything like my wife, Kendra, you have watched and you have owned, and you own all 10 seasons of Friends on DVD. <laughs> and you watch them over and over and over again. We've watched them so much together, together that we often quote lines to each other, just random lines from the show to each other. In one episode, you have Ross, who has a PhD in paleontology. And he gets his good friend, his actor friend, a job as a tour guide at the museum where he works. On his first day of the job, Joey saves a seat for his good friend Ross at his table in the cafeteria. <laughs> but when a fellow tour guide comes and says, hey, can I sit here, Joey kindly tells her to find another seat. Oh no, I'm, I'm saving this seat for my friend Ross. She replies, oh you mean Dr. Geller? He's not gonna sit here. This table is for people who wear blue blazers. <laughs> tour guides. People who wear white coats, doctors, sit over there. Joey laughs, oh no, you don't know my friend Ross, he, he'll sit with me. And sure enough, to, as predicted and to his surprise, Ross comes in, denies Joey's safe seat to sit with the other doctors at the table of the white coats. He is devastated. Joey is confused. What weird museum dimension has he entered into? Outside the museum, they were the best of friends. Inside the museum, they were divided into white coats and blue blazers. And as cute as that is, as a Friends episode, we can relate with that sort of alienation. We too make just arbitrary, random, and pointless distinctions that result in hurt feelings. But what if the damage was even more than that? What, what if the stakes were higher? What if in doing so, we were complicit in alienating others from Christ and from the church. And in our series, we're looking at Ephesians, and we've been looking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and as we come to this passage, we learn in Ephesians chapter 2 that there is an alienation, not between white coats and blue blazers, but between Jews and Gentiles. And I think this passage has a lot to say about what is at stake for us. So I want to ask two questions this morning. First, how do we contribute to alienation? How do we contribute to alienation? And then second, how does the gospel destroy alienation? How do we contribute to it? How does the gospel destroy it? So first, how do we contribute to alienation? In, Paul, in Paul's day, there was a lot of name calling going on. A Jew, in the eyes of a Jew, there, was, there were only two races. Jews, those who were circumcised, and Gentiles, those who weren't. And for a Jew, he would probably refer to himself as the circumcision. And one of the most pejorative, derogatory slurs that he had up his sleeve for a Gentile was the uncircumcision, literally the foreskin. Now imagine that for racial profiling. You're not one of us, you are the foreskin. 
Now, before we give the, the, our Jewish brothers such a hard time for being so cruel, this passage is really about us because we too can alienate and exclude others in our hearts because of the race, gender, or social class. A racial slur might never leave our lips, but we look, we look down on them or we laugh at them for their looks or their accent, or we frown upon their origins or, or their customs. We put up walls, we erect fences, and we draw the wrong lines of who's in and who's out. Not only was there a lot of name-calling going on between Jews and Gentiles, but the community life around the temple itself also created barriers, barriers between people. It created barriers. Now, the temple itself was a good thing. God himself provided the blueprint. And in the middle of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, and it was a place where God's presence would dwell. It was restrictive by design in order to teach us that we cannot enter into God's holiness without a mediator. But what the people started doing was that they put up more and more walls to keep certain people further and further away. So that as you got closer into the center of the temple, it became more and more exclusive. So that only Jews can come this far. And only men can come this far. And only the priest, the spiritual elite, can come this far. And the Gentiles were only allowed in the far outer courts. And we too have that same gravitational pull to think that we ourselves are better or closer to God or more privileged because of our moral history or because of our spiritual devotion. And when we do so, we push people away. We put up walls, we erect fences, and we draw the wrong lines of who's in and who's out. Not only do we create barriers between people, but we also create barriers to God himself. We create barriers to God. I know a little bit about this. I grew up in a Christian home. My father was an elder of a large church. And by the time I was in the first grade, I read the Bible in its entirety uh, all the way through, from cover to cover. And I quickly learned that this was a way I could please my parents. And addicted to the acclaim, I did the same thing the next year. I read the Bible all the way through, and again the next year. And by the time I reached middle school, I had read the Bible over 20 times. And I thought to myself, you know what would be even cooler? Is if I could say, I read the Bible more times than I can count. And I did. I lost count because it sounded more spiritual. It gave me a false sense of identity and self-worth. And so by the time I reached high school, I built such a solid Christian reputation for myself that my good friend Mike came to me for guidance. He just couldn't keep his life together as he wanted. And he looked to me. And you know what my response was? You know what I said to him? I would say to him over and over again, Mike, you didn't let me down. You let God down. I actually said that they actually came out of my mouth. You didn't let me down. You let God down. As if to say, I'm so gracious, but God, I mean, uh, you'll have to take it up with him. Uh, who knows? <laughs> I'm forgiving and compassionate, but I don't know what God thinks of you. And we, Mike and I laugh about it now, but he would say to me later, Steve, you really made me feel terrible about myself. I was not a conduit of grace. When I entered college, I had a roommate named John. He started coming to church, but he still couldn't 
get his life together, and he looked to me for answers. And so, Steve, how do you do what you do? I'm trying to be a Christian, but I just don't know how. I just can't do what you do. And looking back, I was the blind leading the blind. I would give him variations of try harder, stop sinning, and feel really bad about it when you do. <laughs> I said, John, you're just going to have to be better. The entirety of my message was devoid of the gospel. There was no good news because I had not yet experienced it myself. I made things harder for him. I put more weight on his shoulders. I pushed them further and further away from the embrace of Christ. I did not share with him the good news that in Christ, God came near. I just put hurdles in his way. And the weight became so overwhelming that he eventually left the church. We put up walls. We erect fences. And we draw the wrong lines of who's in and who's out. So how does the gospel destroy our alienation? How does the gospel destroy our alienation? If we are complicit participants in and contributors to alienation, then how does the gospel destroy it? To provide a solution, the apostle paints a vivid contrast. He asks us to look intently at who we were without Christ. And then he points us to who we are in Christ. We need to remember who we were, and we need to embrace who we are. The very first thing that Paul does is, is that he asks us to remember who we were. He says in verse 11 through 12, remember. That verb literally uh, is keep on remembering. It is the main verb in these verses. He says, therefore, keep on remembering the formerly you, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called foreskin by the self-professing so-called circumcision, that done in the flesh by human hands, by the way. Keep on remembering that you are at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He asks us to actively recall those very things that brought us shame. We don't like to do that. We don't like to revisit those things. Perhaps some of us have pictures from middle school where we just wore embarrassing clothes. Yes? How many of you guys wore bell bottoms? Or bold enough to admit it? Those things might be coming back. That's pretty cool. But maybe we had big bangs and teased hair in our class photo. Or maybe we had a photo with that someone, the guy or gal we used to date, and we're thinking, what was I thinking? And we're embarrassed of those things. We put that stuff locked up in a box, we put them in the attic, we run them through a shredder. But Paul is asking us to recall those very things that brought us shame. Remember the time when you were called names? When you were objects of scorn? When you had no seat at the table? Remember that time when your sins were yours to bear? You remember how heavy that was? Remember when you first came to the embrace of Christ? Remember how you came empty-handed. Don't forget that. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 2, and we've been seeing that in and of ourselves, by our nature, we are dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We're unable to start our own motors. We can't lift a finger. We can't do anything. We can't move towards God until He moves towards us and injects life until He invades and makes us alive. We can't do anything. 
He has to come in and give us a jump start. Clear, boom. Clear, boom. And if that's who we are by nature in and of ourselves, then how can we look down on others? And then he tells us that our very faith to believe that itself is a gift from God. Perhaps you're here today and you don't know what to think of the person of Jesus. I mean, you're intrigued, you're interested, you want to believe, but the whole Jesus thing seems a little far-fetched. But today you're here. And Jesus has been pursuing you and he wants to bring you near. And you can. If you want to know his embrace, you can ask him. You can say, Jesus, I want to know you. I don't know if I really believe, but I want to. I don't know if I bring anything to the table. I don't have any qualifications, but you say that's okay. Would you come near? And if you just said that prayer just now, the Bible says that faith to do that very thing was a gift from God. And if we ever come to the place where we feel superior in any way, Paul is quick to remind us that even our good works was prepared, were prepared beforehand by God himself. He gets the credit. So what room is there for boasting or for pride? On what grounds do we sneer at others or look down and alienate them? What grounds? We need to remember who we were. But not only do we need to remember who we were, we also need to embrace who we are. We need to embrace who we are. The apostle does not just leave us in that lowly state, but he throws us at just the right time a lifeline. You were dead in sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And he does the same thing in our passage today. He says, but now, but now. You were strange. You were separated from God and his people. You were alienated and strangers, but now you are no longer. But in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have now been brought near. And as we will see next week, Paul goes on to say, that Christ Jesus, by his blood, has torn down the very wall, that fence of hostility that divided Jews and Gentiles. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're black or white, whether you're Republican or Democrat, we all have the same access to God. We all come near through the same Savior. It doesn't matter what is the nature of our sexuality, whether we struggle with homosexual sins or heterosexual sins. All our sins are heinous before God, and we all have access. We all come near through the same Savior. And we stand shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, brothers and sisters, before God in Christ. Why? Because we are in Christ. That's the new you. And that's the new me. And by His blood, his spilt blood, the walls come down. Next time you're in a small group or you go out for a meal with a friend over some coffee or food, broach this question. As a church, Christ the King and J.P. Roxbury, what walls have we inadvertently put up ourselves? If Christ would come in our midst, to what might he say, why is this wall here? To what walls might he want to tear down? And to what people group might he want us to break through? If the Apostle Paul were to write a letter to us, 
The same Paul who wrote this letter to the churches in Ephesus or to write the epistle to Christ the King, J.P. Roxbury, what might he say? What might he say? Which walls need to come down and stay down because we are in Christ? We need to remember who we were and we need to embrace who we are. Now, some of us are thinking, that sounds really hard. You know, it sounds idealistic. It's not where we live. Or some of us think that it's going to require too much work and effort, and we don't know if we have this, that sort of energy. But the, the question to ponder is this. Are we willing to pursue with our lives what cost Jesus his? Are we willing to pursue with our lives what cost Jesus his? Some of us here are thinking, that seems really scary. The notion that Christ has torn down walls with certain people that are different than us, that seems to be a frightening thought. You know, we're worried of the sorts of people that the gospel might actually bring near. And we think that messy people, especially around our children, seems too risky. And we sort of like the way church is. We like the way church is, but you know, God doesn't leave us there. That is not where God wants us to have us. It's too, it's too safe. Can we have them you know, change first before they come? Can we have them tidy up and get their lives in order first? But we need to lock this in as a church. God does not wait for our lives to be in order to love us. He does not wait for our lives to be in order to love us. So we cannot draw the lines of who's in and who's out. It is not our job to change people. It is not our job to put up barriers to keep people from knowing the embrace of Christ. It is our job to bring people in, to introduce them to Christ's embrace, and to let God do the changing. And that change can be a slow and dragged out process. It can be hardly noticeable, measurable for years. Many of you know the name John Newton. He's known as the author of perhaps the most well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton. But many of us might not know his story. John Newton, he had deserted the Navy and had joined the slave trade. And it was during a violent storm at sea when he first cried out to God and started him on his journey. And he would pray and read the Bible. But that journey was not a sudden and dramatic on and off switch. After his conversion, he would remain in the slave trade for another 40 years. That's a long time. Now, grace was amazing on day one, but it took 40 long years for the gospel to work in his heart in that way. And when he wrote that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet they sound, he was still in it. But it was because grace was so amazing. It is because Christ tore down walls that one day he said, this wall needs to come down. So when people come in and we hardly notice any change, when the, the messy people that, are, that we welcome, they can't seem to get their lives together, and that the, the change seems too gradual for anyone to notice, it's, not, it's God who does the changing. We just can't get in the way of Christ's embrace. Perhaps some of you are here today and you do not yet know the embrace of Christ. 
you do not know the nearness of God, you have never taken that next step to come to faith. Perhaps you never did because you didn't realize that Christ was so near, that he was, He's so accessible, that we have the same access, that you and I have the same access as anyone else in this room. The Word is near you, the Bible says. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there is no difference between Jew or Gentile, male or female, addict or sober. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. You say it can't be that easy. You say it can't be that easy. I'm sorry, but the blood of Christ is not easy. We need to remember who we were, and we need to embrace who we are. When I was in college, I kept a journal entry. Uh, I kept journals, and I wrote in them every single day. And I'm glad I did, because that's when I became a Christian. And when I occasionally look back, it helps me to remember. And I think of how miserable I was without Christ. And, you know, I, I grew up in the church. I memorized seven books of the Bible in my first two years of college, and yet I was still far from Christ. And I wanted to be vulnerable with you a little bit and share with you some of my journal excerpts in order to paint a vivid contrast. The first few entries are before my conversion. The last couple are after. And I hope that the contrast will become apparent before my conversion. Friday, March 7th, 2003. Today I faked a parking ticket so that I would not get another one. I've been doing this for quite some time. That's pretty smart, right? <laughs> and today at school, I got a $40 ticket as I so deserved. Sin, discipline, forgive me. I lied about having a buy one, get one free coupon from Papa John's Pizza. <laughs> Little wonder then I got ill six times tonight. <laughs> Friday, April 11, 2003. I went the distance this time. Shutting out your voice with my calloused heart, with my ever calloused heart, I ran from you and I ignored your voice. When I look back, I can see you screaming and I failed. And for some reason, my heart is not repentant enough. Lord, take not thy blessings from me. Punish not my household, not my future wife, nor my family. Lord, punish not my wife. Years before I even met Kendra. August 6, 2003. Lord, today I sinned three times. Some of us, some of us are thinking that's pretty good. But I was keeping count for sure. Lord, today I sinned three times. Lord, be patient with me and help me to discover truth. After my conversion, Sunday, February 22, 2004. Lord, I thank you for joy. I am so joyful these days. Maybe it's because I've come to the grips that I am beyond hope morally and that Christ has paid for it all. Perhaps joy comes with that, understanding the gospel. Wednesday, 21st, 2004. I know my track record. I know who I am. I don't deserve to be in the king's family. I got nothing on my resume. I really don't. But I have a hope not in something I did or purity I kept, sermon I presented, Bible study I led, or paper I've written, 
but my hope is unshakable, for it is in him. I often wonder what I would say to my roommate John if I ever ran into him. What if I could tell him what I've now come to learn? John is not about obligation. It's not about a performance. It's not about doing more, jumping higher, swimming further, running faster. Following Christ is not meant to feel weighty. We don't have to do anything to qualify to become an object of God's love because Christ has already been qualified in our place. The blood of Jesus really is enough. We need to remember who we were and we need to embrace who we are. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share from your word and to share my life and my story with my friends here and for working in me. I pray that you continue to continue to work in me and in the lives of my friends here. Holy Spirit, I ask that you connect the dots and hit home for each one of us where we need to hear. And we ask that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That is, show us Jesus. I pray for my secret skeptic friends here, for my friends struggling with addiction, for my friends here who have skittish hearts, uncertain of where they stand with you. Would you draw near to us? Jesus, today we need to hear your voice. It is in your name we pray. Amen.